You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Our guest this hour is Stephen G. Post. He is an ethicist pastor and the director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University. Among other books, he is the author of The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, Ethical Issues from Diagnosis to Dying. In his most recent book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease, a 2022 release from Johns Hopkins University Press, Post presents the wide array of issues both family, individuals, caregivers, medical professionals, and the general society must address. As Post points out, we do not find breaking from hypercognitive personhood easily, making it thus a challenge culturally and medically to properly address people who progressively lose rational or recollective capacities, hence his term, deeply forgetful people. Yet as he concludes in so many ways, nothing, absolutely nothing, replaces love, compassion, and genuine caregiving. Thank you again, Stephen, for joining me. Well, Dr. Zoe, it is a pleasure. And may I refer to you as Dr. Zoe? Sure. Okay, good. You know, as you point out in your book, the title is Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. So let, let's start there. What does deeply forgetful people convey? It's an alternative to dementia, which is a strictly medical professional term. But it's also a negative term in the sense of being a decline from a former mental state. And as such, it easily divides them from us. It usually invites negative metaphors like husk, gone, absent, shell. Deeply forgetful people is much more of a continuum concept. We all have our moments. And, and um, it, it helps us to notice and be sensitive to the expressions of continuing identity, which are there sometimes sporadically, but also that can be... Um, brought out and stimulated with all kinds of different techniques, uh, including music and memory and the Unforgettables choir and all kinds of things that can bring people back into themselves. And that's important because caregivers need to know that grandma's still there. Right. And of course, that's one of the questions I think any family member um, asks about their loved one when Alzheimer's gets progressively more apparent. And and you also pointed out there were so many things in this book that are just so invaluable to anybody, because all of us know somebody if we don't have somebody in our own family who are challenged by Alzheimer's. And, and, you, and not all Alzheimer patients are elders. You know, there are people who are younger being diagnosed. So while the medical community, as you pointed out, often looks for drugs and other interventions that have yet to be discovered, 
your work stresses the humanity with which we treat anyone, including the caregivers, and that they need more attention as well. Yes, very much so. The caregivers will, on the whole, have a little higher depression rate than the general population, just because they are living these 36-hour days and dealing with all kinds of challenges. We've done studies showing that if they just have a half a day of respite, if someone just comes in and takes over the caregiving responsibilities for that little bit of time per week, that depression rate goes right down to baseline. That's how I actually broke into the Alzheimer's field probably now 35 years ago, just providing that kind of respite to family caregivers in greater Cleveland. Um, and I've always been attentive to that, but it doesn't get uh, much support. There's no funding for it uh, in contrast to some other countries where they do a lot more to take care of the caregivers, that incredibly important resource. Uh, and, and, and so, sure, we have to think a lot about the caregivers and and uh, what what can actually make this a hopeful experience. I say that hope is being open to surprises because you have to recognize that at times these individuals who have seemed so far gone, they'll suddenly be there, at least at least to a much greater extent than they were. And that's the most beautiful thing. So hope is being open to surprises. Right, right. And I like the fact that you shared that there are cultures such as the Japanese, the Chinese, and the African-American who show reverence for their elders. And I think that's a piece of it. It's that our culture is so programmed to be youth-oriented that what used to just be simply senility or aging has a medical label now. But yet, is Alzheimer's actually um, treated as a terminal disease, even though that it is for most people? Well, this gets very technical. Alzheimer's is one of about 15 major causes of dementia. And dementia is a cluster of symptoms, but it can be caused by Parkinson's, by chronic traumatic encephalitis, or what goes by the name concussions. Uh, it can be due to vascular issues, small stroke events in the white matter of the brain. And a lot of times, any particular individual who's suffering with dementia, if they're suffering, which is an interesting term, uh, but struggling with dementia, at least till the point where they forget that they forget. Right. And so they're no longer insightful into their losses. And they can drift into the pure present and have whatever benign emotional experience is possible. And that can be enhanced in all different kinds of ways. Uh, but, but sure, you know, uh, Alzheimer's is finally a terminal condition. The trouble is that, you know, you never know. You've seen one case, you've seen one case, uh, and uh, it, it can be very complicated. Also, how we care about people affects the actual course of the progression, because now we know all about uh, neuroplasticity and epigenetics. And so if we can treat somebody with kindness, uh, with love, uh, oftentimes that will actually feed right into their situation because they are less stressed. And we know that stress is widely accepted as one of the seven or eight major channels into dementia and especially Alzheimer's because it causes, if it's protracted, 
it causes hippocampal atrophy, a, a, a disintegration of that part of the brain that's so important for laying down uh, new memories. So uh, we need to treat people with kindness. And in terms of the pharmacology available, uh, it's not much. There is no magic bullet uh, to speak of. And I don't see one on the horizon. You know, when I listen to you describe these things and I think about discussions that families have with their loved ones who are diagnosed and still you know, cognitive enough to make decisions about their life, and some may choose to end their life earlier than waiting for the disease to end it for them, and that they can choose in some states and in some nations preemptive physician-assisted suicide. And you raise a lot of questions about this process and what it could hypothetically lead to, not just for Alzheimer's patients, but diseases and accidents. So I thought it important as an, as an ethicist and, a, and as a pastor to, to hear your perspective on this. You know, in general, uh, Dr. Zoe, I am not an advocate for preemptive assisted suicide. However, when I go back to my days in the 1970s at the University of Chicago, I had two wonderful mentors. Both of them were psychiatrists. And they were both diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's disease. It's always a probable diagnosis. Um, one of them had a wonderful family, and he uh, lived for another 12 years. He spent uh, the last several years in a nursing home because he became complex in his care needs. But he managed quite well, and his family was there to advocate for him and make sure he died without a tube. and every orifice, natural and unnatural, he wanted a very natural dying, and he got that. And the other psychiatrist um, had no family at all. He had no confidence that he wouldn't be overtreated. And so he took 40 secanols, put a plastic bag over his head, and I read about him the next day in the Chicago Sun-Times. And I had to think about that a lot. My conclusion was that I would never judge that second individual. Uh, and that's because even though we can try to convince people that we will provide good care, uh, that uh, they will be uh, treated responsibly and not simply overwhelmed by medical technologies, that they can be well cared for in a hospice, that they don't need a feeding peg, that they can get assisted oral feeding, which I did with my grandmother. Uh, you know, um, there's a lot of distrust. So I talk about a, a, a clown, a street clown from San Francisco, who a couple of years ago, uh, he had no family at all. He performed on the library steps in, in that great city. Um, but he determined once he had his diagnosis and he felt that he was fading a bit, that he would buy a plane ticket and he went off, Dr. Zoe, he went off to Switzerland to a place called Dignitas, and he never came back. Do I think that what he did was nefarious or uh, evil in some way? No, I don't. The one thing I'll say is that in the Netherlands, in Switzerland, in Canada, they provide lots of publicly funded long-term care, all the nursing home and uh assisted living care is provided for. 
And so families don't have to spend down into relative poverty like they do here uh, to qualify for any kind of uh, government benefits. And I understood, you know, why he did that. He was worried about his future. He had no one he could depend on. And so, again, you know, judge not lest ye be judged, not to advocate for it. But I've witnessed a couple of cases, which I describe fairly graphically in the book. Uh, I, I spent 20 years in Cleveland in case med, you know, and and sometimes uh, these very distinguished families, you'd have a wonderful um, matriarch who uh, had gone to Smith College, for example, and she was very lucid of mind and very thoughtful. And instead of experiencing a kind of self-effacement, uh, she determined that she would rather die in their home by the the shores of Lake Erie. Uh, she had her Seekinols, uh ground up and in, in a um, chocolate milkshake. Uh, she had the fire going. She had her spouse and her adult children there with her. Uh, she had Johann Sebastian Bach playing. Uh, everybody was hugging each other and having wonderful memories of the most meaningful things in their lives. And she asked me to be there just to pray with them. And it wasn't that I advocated this. I told them, I actually said, you know, I wish you wouldn't do this, but but, um, but this is what she wanted. And she was certainly autonomous and fully capacitated. Anybody who tried to say that she wasn't, I think, had to, had to think that through. And so I was there and they went very peacefully. Uh, it was uh, deep. She swallowed that... Uh, that milkshake, and then after about 20 minutes, uh, she had faded into sleep, and and that was it. And nobody was hysterical. Uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the end of the world for anybody. In fact, they were all on board with her when she did that. So again, I'm not advocating this, but I don't think we should judge anybody for wanting to go this path. Exactly. Exactly. And and we only have a little bit of time in this portion of our program left, but how many people does Alzheimer's actually affect in this country? You know, that's a good question because there's a lot of promotional uh, statistics that get laid out by Alzheimer's associations here and there. But I would say uh, possibly 5 million. Wow. No, no more than that. But that's that's a number that's been thrown around over the last six or seven years. Uh, it's not clear if it's increasing or decreasing. Um, and there are all kinds of elements to how these calculations are made. Sure. There's something on the order of Interesting. five million. If you're just joining us, I'm Dr. Zoharonymous. Stephen G. Post is our guest. We're discussing his book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. Hi, this is Dr. Bernie Siegel speaking to you for 21st Century Radio. Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. She's top quality, as is her program, speaking about consciousness and opening our minds to what I think will be the future of both medical care as well as how we care for ourselves and each other and really begin to understand ourselves. And my latest book is The Art of Healing. Bless you all. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and our guest is Stephen G. Post. His book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease, is an um, amazing book to read. 
particularly if you have an interest or you have a family member or you're a caregiver for somebody who um, has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And so it, and also in your book, you have lots of helpful hints and and very explicit as well things people can do for instance you you point out i think it was page 37 i'm looking at my notes that there are 12 aspects of the enduring self regardless of cognitive and verbal or verbal skills because as you point out we have a culture that is completely based on a term you coined hypercognition so first let's talk about what hypercognition is, and then let's talk about these 12 aspects of the enduring self that are not based on cognition or verbal skills. Well, thank you, Dr. Zoe, for raising this is a very crucial point. Um, You know, uh, our Western philosophy tends to value a human being, whether you're reading John Locke's second treatise on government or Immanuel Kant we tend to value people to the extent that they can manifest rational agency, linear reason, operationalizing plans over time. And that gives them full personhood and also full productivity. Uh, In uh, Germany, uh, where they subjected people who were deeply forgetful to hypothermia, Uh, experiments and obviously death, uh, they were referred to as life unworthy of life, uh, useless eaters, and these were not discriminated against groups uh, uh, in the more broad sense of race hygienics and the like. These were people who had nothing going against them. They were Aryans, but they were deeply forgetful. And so all the negative metaphors led to their torture. And we don't see that in the U.S., of course, in the modern world, but that's because we have voluntary associations like the Alzheimer's Association and so forth that protect and guard and guide. But there can still be abuse, and we still hear the word dementia used in a very derisive way. Even politicians, I might say, you know, will refer to somebody as, oh, they're just demented. It's quite terrible, actually. Um, But I think that um, my answer to this came uh, in saying we have to get away from hypercognitive values because a person can be deeply forgetful. I have my moments, but they can still enjoy um, the smell of an apple pie. They can still pick up the beauty of the autumn leaves. Uh, They can be uh, touched by religious symbols. Um, One of my friends at Yale, uh, Leander Keck, a New Testament scholar, uh, his wife Janet uh, became deeply forgetful and she was really challenged. She needed a lot of help. But when she went to their chapel service uh, on Sunday mornings and suddenly she was hearing familiar music in the form of hymns, suddenly Uh, She was seeing the stained glass windows. Suddenly she was hearing prayers that had been meaningful to her over the course of her life. She would actually get somatic and chime in and surprise people and become a little bit more of her old self. And lo and behold, even after the service would end, she could have brief conversations. 
And so we can connect with these people. They're not dead. They're not gone. I was in uh, Bangalore, which is a beautiful place in India. Um, and I was doing a talk for the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies six years ago. And it was on uh, the problem of hypercognitive values, which people actually around the world agree with me on this. And I was saying that we shouldn't diminish people's moral status because they are memory impaired. Unfortunately, that's what happens. Now, these are all Hindu neurologists, Hindu philosophers. They had no problem with this. So uh, I was about halfway through this talk and somebody, a very famous uh, Hindu uh, figure, came in the back uh, of the room because he likes to hang around Bangalore, uh, and this was his holiness, and he listened, and he put his hand down on the table at the end, and he said, absolutely right. We should value people no matter what the state of their memory because they still have consciousness. They're, they have consciousness, and that's what really matters. Now, of course, if, you, if you're brain dead, if you have higher brain death, maybe you don't have consciousness, so I'm not saying that People in the persistent vegetative state can be honored in the way that someone who is deeply forgetful can be. That's not so. But I tell the story in the book about going to a small town in Ohio, Mount Vernon, and there was a geriatric uh, psychiatric hospital there with a wing devoted to people with Down syndrome who'd now grown into their 50s. And they almost always have the dual diagnosis of probable Alzheimer's as well. And there, there was a community of wonderful Hindu nurses and nurses' aides who were taking such diligent care of these individuals. I mean, they were so palpably loving. And Joe Foley, my mentor, neurologist, and I took a few of these folks out to a pizza restaurant that afternoon. And we just asked them. We were curious. You, you do such a beautiful job with these individuals. And you're here in the middle of Ohio. And you're, you know, you're not around your communities terribly much. What, what motivates you? And they said, namaste, which, as you know, means I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. So there's a depth, a mystery to being human. And that's what we need to recognize. And it may be obscure. It may be opaque. But believe me, and the book talks a lot about this, you know, it can be recovered with lots of different techniques that stimulate person's uh, sense of who they are and what their narrative is. Because they never lose their symbolic memory. You can get someone at the very end stage, like de Kooning, the artist, he still knew that he was somehow identified 13 years with Alzheimer's, with that paintbrush, that pair of artist dungarees, and he would still sporadically rise up and go up to the easel and he would paint. And there was a posthumous exhibit of his work, and it was actually, in a lot of ways, more uplifting than some of his uh, heavier, uh, uh, anxious, existentialist stuff from the 1950s. In one of your stories, you um, shared a gentleman who, when he was in his youth, he would chop wood, carry wood for the household, etc. You remember that story? Yeah, Jim, I could never forget it. Yeah, I thought that was really compelling. Share that with us. Yeah. I'd be happy to, uh, Dr. Zoe. So Joe Foley, who was the fellow who recruited me to Case Western in 1988. And to whom you uh, dedicate your book, I'd like to add. 
Oh, absolutely. He, you know, he was the only neurologist who was the president of the American Neurological Society, the American Academy of Neuroscience. He was amazing. And we had such a wonderful time. I owe him everything. And I, in fact, I, I think this book is in a lot of ways his book. Um, but, you know, um, we went to a nursing home called Heather Hill in a small town, Chardon, Ohio, which is up in the northeast, not too far from the uh, New York state border. And we went into the um, special care section for people who were deeply forgetful. Uh, there were probably 30 people in that whole unit, and they each had a little bedroom that was their own. And we went in and we read a bio sketch about a guy named Jim. And we read that he had a couple of sons, that he'd been an accountant, I believe, and we knew a little bit about him. So um, then we went out into the main room and a lot of these folks were ambulating uh, uh, and enjoying their consciousness, if you will. Um, and uh, I asked the nurse, where's Jim? Uh, she took me over to Jim and I took him by the arm and sat down with him. And, uh, and I asked him, I, I, this was before I really knew how to use language well. I asked him an open-ended question, always a big mistake. How are your kids? Now, people who are deeply forgetful, they have a hard time retrieving words. So you never want to ask them something like, what would you like for breakfast? You have to clue them in. You want to say, do you like omelets or post-toasties? And then they'll say, oh, omelet, you know. You'll be surprised sometimes if you learn to use language well. Not that it's always miraculous, but it, it is a good technique, and there are whole books written about it. Uh, so, so I asked him, how are your sons? And he got anxious. But then I remembered his son's name. So I said, how's Luke? How's Zach? And he just lit up. And he was he, he clearly um, radiant. He couldn't speak, but he was still emotionally radiant. And I could see it in his eyes. And then he took a twig. It was a white branch of just, you know, a foot long or so that was very rounded on the edges. And um, uh, he, he put it in my hands. And we put it in my hands. He smiled this incredibly effusive smile. And I got to tell you, you know, if love was electric, that place would have been on fire. And then I quietly handed it back to him. He, by the way, when he gave it to me, he said, God is love, which kind of struck me. And um, I asked the nurse, um, so what's the story with Jim and this twig? And she said, well, he grew up on a farm and he loved his father a lot. And like a lot of people who are deeply forgetful, you know, the world in this moment is kind of charging at them and they don't know how to interpret it. He'd gone back in time to a period and an experience that he felt uh, was so wonderful and filled with tender, loving care. Turned out he grew up on a farm not too far from Chardon. He loved his father a lot. His father loved him. And his father gave him a chore every morning, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. And so that, that piece of twig that he gave me, he identified with. He knew somehow that was part of his journey in life. And uh, it was quite amazing. So then he, he got up and he saw this rag doll on the floor. And it was a really beat up rag doll, the kind of thing that you'd give your your daughter when she's three years old, a sort of a puppet doll. And um, lo and behold, he picked it up 
and he quietly walked over to a woman who was in the corner of this unit on a comfortable chair, but with her knees up and she was crying. He put the doll on her knees and she stopped crying. And then I asked the nurse, so what's the story with, with that doll? And that was that woman's doll. And, and so Jim, he may have been deeply forgetful, okay, but he had a lot of emotional intelligence, a lot more than some people I know, honestly, who, who, who just don't get this kind of thing. So he realized he was living in a symbolic universe. And one of the points I make in the book is that symbolic reasoning never goes. I knew a guy named Clint who worked in the steel mills on the west side of the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland. And, and he became seriously forgetful and died of Alzheimer's. But even to the last moment, he clung to his cowboy hat. Why? Because he dressed country and western, and he somehow still knew that who he was was connected with that symbol. So this is why pastoral care can still do a lot of good for people who are very deeply forgetful, because it's essentially using symbols, a rosary bead. Somebody can have a rosary bead in their hand, and it will stimulate them to say a prayer. Or, uh, you know, if, they, if they're if they a Buddhist, they can go, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. I've seen it myself. Just uh, really at the very end of a life. So, so that side of them is never to be underestimated, and it's very valuable. And I think you make that so clear throughout your book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. And, and this issue of emotional intelligence and um, symbolic memory are such full realities for us throughout our entire lifetimes. But again, back to this notion that if somebody can't, you know, willfully use cognition and verbal acuity the way our culture likes things to be, we kind of wrap the person up in as, well, they really don't know what they're doing. They have nothing to say. There's nothing to contribute. And um, when we come back from our break, I'd like to talk about some of these other things in addition to the symbolic and the emotional. You point out that they're somatic and musical. Um, these are skills that we can help people who are deeply forgetful um, have relation and have peace. If you're just joining us, I'm Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. Stephen G. Post is our guest. To learn more about Stephen G. Post, his work, his travels, and presentations, go to Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G-Post.com. That's StephenGPost.com and UnlimitedLoveInstitute.org. That's UnlimitedLoveInstitute.org. Hello, I'm Bill Sweet of Spindrift Research. Our website is SpindriftResearch.org. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Zoe Hieronymus, and we're looking forward to having more of you open-minded people listen in. So I think, Stephen, you've done just a, a wonderful job and made such a valuable contribution to um, the 5 million people and their families in this country who um, are challenged by Alzheimer's, and oftentimes there's stages of anger, not just of the person with the disease, but the people taking care of them. And there's exhaustion, as you point out, so we need to be mindful of helping caregivers get the care they need so they can take a break. There are stages of Alzheimer's where a person can be physically resistant, um, emotionally 
traumatized by what's going on because they still know enough to know that they can't remember. And so the frustration of not retrieving words or names or associations um, is unbearable for some people. But then this, the disease often progresses to a point where a person may forget that they have forgotten. And it's a new state of being where there is calm and peace as long as those around them accept this as important and not a diminishment, but in some ways it's a great addition. So talk to us a bit about these 12 aspects of the enduring self outside of cognitive or verbal skills. I will do that. And by the way, just on your last comment, I do believe that if there is a kind point in the progression of dementia, it does come when people forget that they forget because then they can have a relatively benign emotional adjustment. Not always, but often so. And guess what, Dr. Zoe? They can become disinhibited. You know, (laughs) de Kooning, I go back to the abstract expressionist uh, de Kooning, who was diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's uh, at Cornell Memory Disorders Center. And, uh, you know, when he was, shall we say, fully intact, uh, he was the artist of the age of anxiety. And his stuff was so graphically edgy and rough. And you could see he was a guy who hung out on Bleecker Street and gotten fistfights, which he did in front of the Cafe Wa. I mean, that was who he was. But de Kooning, when he became more deeply forgetful, he became more graceful, more generous, more kind in his painting. It becomes a little closer to say, Georgia O'Keeffe. It's flowery, um, it's got elements of effervescence, uh, lots of bright yellow, sunshiny colors. Um, When he uh, would sporadically rise up, he had one helper in his loft in Greenwich Village you know, he'd dip that brush in the acrylic and he'd go up there and he'd paint something. And it was purposeful. I mean, that's, you know, you talk about what people do. Is it just chaos? No. I mean, if you look for it, if you want to notice it, it was purposeful. I think he was trying to express greater love in that last 13 and a half years of his life than maybe he ever had before in his artistic work. Mm-hmm. So there was a posthumous exhibit and uh, some of the reviewers said, oh, he was a shell of his former self. His stuff is so simplistic now, and it lacks that kind of crazy intensity uh, that, that uh, he was known for. But uh, there was one reviewer uh, who said, uh, wait a minute. This is a guy who was diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's disease. He died 14 years later, but for 13 and a half of those years... He knew who he was. He knew he was an artist. He knew what to do with that paintbrush. And he was painting things that became more gentle, more graceful uh, through that experience. And that's not to say that this isn't isn't a very difficult and tragic um, process that people go through, but he found something in himself um, that was actually quite beautiful. 
Well, and I think you you mentioned earlier a little bit about this issue of consciousness, and um, I I like to remind myself and everybody else that we pretty much categorically now know that consciousness exists outside the brain, and because parts of the brain may atrophy, um, and a certain kind of you know hypercomputer capacity is no longer working. Um, in a, an individual person, the soul still has conscious awareness, which is why I think symbolic memory is so so fascinating that an object that refers to an activity or an experience becomes the activity and the experience itself. That's so important. I have a chapter in the book which I could not have written, I don't think, in America. I wrote it when I was in Bangalore at that Indian Institute, and the title of the chapter is, Is Grandma Still There? Right. Question mark. And my influence here is Sir John Eccles, who I studied with at the University of Chicago. And John Eccles uh, really discovered everything basic that we know about communication at the synapse between brain cells. And that's why he got the Nobel Prize. And he never believed that the brain told the whole story of the mind. So I just, a little quote from here that I just happened to have on my desk. He said, I believe there is a fundamental mystery in my existence, transcending any biological account of the development of my body, including my brain, with its genetic inheritance and its evolutionary origin. About half of the philosophers of mind don't think that mind is just derived from cells, tissue, uh, the brain. So the brain can deteriorate, but that in no way means that this that the soul is gone in the buddhist tradition they have this idea of the akashic memory where somehow all these memories of our life are are still there and that's how the concept of um uh, what am i thinking of a karma actually operates metaphysically that somehow or another there's a deeper aspect of memory so I talk about some very, very fine neuroscientists uh, who tell us that we, we analogize this to the, to the computer on your desk. So that computer on your desk, it holds a certain amount of memory. Um, but most of the memory is being held in the cloud, okay? And similarly, uh, you know, people who study memory in the human brain, they can talk about habituated memory, but they've never been able to solve the riddle of how we can just in a millisecond remember the whole narrative of our lives. Go back to when we were five years old and remember that beautiful tree we were leaning against or whatever it might be. That we can summon into our minds beautiful scenarios of the mountaintops at the Delaware Water Gap. Uh, that we can do all of that is, is well, St. Augustine in the Confessions thought that was really something very, very spiritual. And so in my view, that's what they were telling me at, at uh, Mount Vernon, Ohio, when those wonderful Hindu 
uh, caregivers said in our question, you know, why do you care so diligently and so thoughtfully about these individuals? They said, namaste. I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. And ultimately, that's what dignity really comes down to. Because if, if you're Bertrand Russell, who was a complete materialist, uh, someone asked him, what is human dignity? He said, well, there isn't any because we are just glorified pond scum. Now, others could argue that there could be a basis for dignity and just uh, a materialistic view of the world. But I'm one of, one of those who's long been convinced. And this goes back to my own experiences with my own grandmother when I was much younger and she died of probable Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there were just elements uh, to her life and to my experience doing assisted oral feeding with her when she would just come into her own. And I knew that even though she looked like she was gone, she wasn't gone. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe she was ahead of it spiritually. Uh, maybe she'd already gone down to uh, um, the train station and, and had one foot on that train bound for glory. We don't know. But the Japanese caregivers believe that when they actually look at people who are deeply forgetful, very deeply forgetful, and, and, and they have images of enlightenment, um, which I won't go into right now, but essentially being beyond the limits of place and time, uh, living mostly in the pure present. Uh, and of course, people who are in that state are a lot less stressed than their caregivers, oftentimes. So yeah. there's a lot to be said about the mystery of consciousness and mind. And, and I believe we need to think about that. I believe this is the first book that ever actually touches on that. Well, it, and the contribution as recognized by your peers around the country, including the Dalai Lama, have said that this work addresses themes such as, quote, consciousness and interconnectedness. And um, he says it will contribute to the flourishing of humanity. You've been at this a long time, more than three decades. And as an ethicist and as a pastor, in addition to your teaching at Stony Brook, how have your decades of engagement in Alzheimer's changed you or your own perceptions of reality? I have learned to be open to surprises. Uh, I've learned to never write somebody off because they are deeply forgetful. And, you know, it's a continuum. So I have times I go out behind this building and I can forget where I parked my car and I might ask a medical student, you know where I parked my car? And she might laugh. There was one time I have to confess when I actually asked, do you know if I drove to work today? Then they really laugh. But, you know, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you, you pe people have moments of deep forgetfulness and it's a little embarrassing for them. And we have hundreds of students here, and I've met everybody, but I can still on any given day forget a name. Sure. Um, the fact that someone who's deeply forgetful forgets the name of a loved one or a grandchild, you know, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world. They probably still at some deeper level have a sense of who you are. And if you'll just observe them and interact with them, um, you can see that there's more there than meets the eye. So working with the deeply forgetful has made me uh, something other than 
hypercognitive, you know. I mean, right. I, I, it's really in my in my soul, in my mind, in my in my writing, in my interactions with people. Um, I, I I get troubled by um, some of the modern day philosophers who really dismiss individuals who who are not cognitively sharp and and trained and skilled. Uh, but I see that as really an aberration. And I, um, I think we need to value all human beings on the basis of their consciousness and their continuity with, uh, if you will, uh, to quote Larry Dossi, with one mind. Great book, by the way, Larry's recent book, One Mind. Well, you know, I think, you know, we weren't able to cover all of the wonderful recognitions you make in Dignity for Depth deeply forgetful people, both for caregivers and family members. But I think the the primary themes we've touched on um, do some justice to the incredible contribution you make and that those who have confided in you, families or individuals, um, are making such a difference in the world because it's not easy. I have a family member as well who I have been experiencing this journey with. And um, once they forgot that they forget, uh, things really got much better for this person, and it becomes more a question of hello, I love you, goodbye, can I walk you to the door, things that you don't even anticipate. Well, we didn't get to helper dogs, but there are Alzheimer helper dogs and some dogs of Alzheimer's, so pair them up. Our guest has been Stephen G. Post, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease is his most recent 2022 release. Thank you, Dr. Zoe. It is really a delight to uh, speak with you and to learn from your insightful questions. Thank you, Stephen. To learn more about Stephen G. Post, his work, his travels, and presentations, go to Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G Post.com. That's Stephen G. Post.com and UnlimitedLoveInstitute.org. That's UnlimitedLoveInstitute.org. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.